Hello and welcome to Power Talk Season 3, the Lockdown Edition. Power Talks are short, powerful interviews from leading youth violence experts spreading new ideas and sharing best practice. Today we interview Henna Shah from the organisation Charity So White. We talk about the disproportionality that BAME organisations have to deal with when applying for grants and engaging with funders. Welcome to season three of Power Talk, this locked down edition version of Power Talk. Um, we are joined with Henna Shah of Charity So White, an organisation which I've been following from afar for a while. And um, I've been watching some of the social media stuff. And every time you guys post something, I think, wow, I can relate a lot to what you're saying. Um, and also, wow, you're bold. You can say some stuff which I'm not sure I can get away with saying stuff. So I thought, you know what? Let's get Hannah on Power Talk. Let's try and find out what's going on. Because I also feel for some of our uh, listeners and people watching this, even the name might just be like, well, I can't engage with that, you know? Yeah. So let's try and demystify that and let's just try and find out. So first and foremost, tell me a little bit about you and then onto Charity So White. What is that about? Yeah, so my name's Hannah. Um, about me, I think it's interesting. I was quite excited when you invited me on because I was like, this is the kind of thing I don't normally get to do um i sound pretty posh but i'm actually from hounslow if you've ever been there you know it is not very nice um and i guess i'm an activist and campaigner i've done stuff in the Labour party do stuff with charity right now um but really the whole thing was colored by where i grew up and like the experiences i had as a young person and what i saw around me and then i got an opportunity that like loads of people i went to school with and that I grew up with didn't really have which was to go to university to sound like this I can't get rid of it it's really annoying um, and actually then to take that voice and take that stuff into like big white rooms and say things um, and that's like what I try and do so it was it's nice to be able to talk to people or in an environment with people who have an experience of what it's like to grow up and work in the city and deal with youth culture, because it's something that like I don't get to really do anymore. Um, Charity So White is interesting. So uh, one of my friends, Fatima, she's a great girl. She has always been interested in diversity, inclusion, training, and she ran a charity that I was really involved in. Uh, and kept horizon this sort of stuff and about nine months ago she saw that Citizens Advice which is this huge national charity I'm sure like some of your listeners or viewers will know about it um, they have a network of organisations had published some training about how you work with ethnic minority communities and this was training for volunteers who are meant to be supporting some of the most vulnerable people, right? Like you don't go to sit and advice if everything in your life is fine. You go if you need help applying for benefits or something wrong with your landlord, etc., etc. And there were like nine points and essentially it was entirely generalized. And there were points which were like, um, ethnic minorities have a cash centric culture. Like, what does that even mean? Wow. Ethnic minorities have, like, um, 
communities which strongly tied to the notions of honor and shame. Okay, what does that like, what does that mean? Ethnic minorities care a lot about families. Like they managed to phrase it in such a way that having big, close families sounded bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and she tweeted about it and she said, I'm really surprised that Sins Advice published something like that on their website and that they were using this to train people. How did this happen? How did a national charity that's meant to be serving vulnerable people uh, put this kind of stuff out there and it started from there and basically we started speaking to people in the sector and we were both active volunteering and doing stuff and brought in more and more people we've got I think something like 13 or 14 people who volunteer as organizers now Um, and we put the call out there asked on Twitter and we said this is really bad have you had a bad experience and Honestly, stuff just came rolling in. There were CEOs who were um, black or brown who went into meetings with funders and everyone thought that they were beneficiaries rather than staff. Like you had people, you know, standard microaggressions where people had comments made about how they looked or their hair or the time of year. The kind of stuff that you wouldn't expect in a sector that's meant to be about helping people, right? Because people assume that if you work in charity or if you're involved in that, that you're a nice person. You're not racist. You're trying to do the best. And actually the case was that we, we found that this was less the case. And actually it was the case that more and more this kind of behavior and ideology goes unchallenged because people think that, oh, they're doing good. So if they're acting a bit racist, then it's fine because they're doing good. Um, And we've been campaigning and organizing for a while now. And that means we've been speaking to the heads of big charities. You know, until COVID, we were just trying to get the heads of large charities to admit the fact that structural or institutional racism exists within their organization, to say it. And that was quite difficult. Um, Engaging with funders, engaging with game networks. And we were sort of plodding along and making some waves in the sector and starting to open up the conversation. And then obviously, coronavirus happened. Um, and I think that just made us speed up much more because like, this is a long-term thing, right? Thinking about where power lies in the sector, who funds who, who gets resources, which communities are cared about and not is like a long-term thing. But actually, we have the numbers. Like, if you look at the numbers of Black and African people and Pakistanis and Bangladeshis who are dying from COVID, you're talking multiples of white people. And so not only is it the same inequality that we've always seen, but now with COVID, we can see that it's really horrible, but we can see that inequality in terms of people literally dying. Um, And it's this that's really like pushed the conversation forward. And I don't know if you've seen, but some of the organizations in the sector have been looking at research. So the Ubele initiative brought out a paper, I think it was last week, that said, unless something happens and something changes, if lockdown continues, 90% of BAME-led organisations are going to have to close. Yeah, I did, I did see that. And it's interesting because I lead, I'm a, a black man who leads a, an organisation. And it was interesting, if it's the same thing I, I, I saw, mm. I, most of these organisations are not having a turnover anywhere near £100,000 a, no, a year. Yeah, small organisations. Yeah, and it's kind of, I think what, is interesting what you said is that we all know the inequalities were there um, prior to COVID. 
Mm. Even though, you know, I've read stuff recently where it's been like, oh, it's victimhood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What we now see is that the spotlight is shining very brightly on these inequalities. They haven't disappeared anywhere. So I think it's fascinating timing. So I think obviously you were doing some work and then now it's just gone through the roof. And it's definitely something which I have experienced myself. Hence the reason I really wanted to talk to you because I just feel, um, with, I've got another hat where, because I've written a book very much specifically looking at race and the church, what yeah. I've been able to shine a light on is those racial inequalities in, in those structures, particularly in leadership structures. So mm-hmm. before COVID, I was inundated with, can you come and help us look at our, our structures? Now it's gone through the roof. So I can totally get what you're saying. What are your aims and objectives with the movement? In, I mean, I'm sure you have very specific ones, but it'd be interesting yeah. just to hear. So at the moment, we're focused on asking funders to ring fence funding specifically for BAME-led organisations. Um, I know you said it's really interesting what you said about it, specifically being small organisations that are under threat. I think one, what we've seen from the experience of um, other, other crises like Grenfell is that it's the smallest community-based organisations who know how to deal with their local people the best. Right. And also, it's a shorthand, to be perfectly honest, for how people are treating the rest of the sector and for people and for treating BAME people in general. So we're asking for funders to ring fence 20% of the relief money, the £750 million. Now, loads of that cash has already left. Loads of that cash has gone to hospices and other things, et cetera, et cetera. And we're saying, actually, what we want is we want a guaranteed piece of the pie for emergency response. And then after that, we want for you and to whether it's a big funder like Comic Relief have actually been quite good, but like National Lottery, National Emergencies Trust, actually you need to think about recovery funding and about how you fund BAME infrastructure organisations and ensure that there is a sector for BAME people that can resource small BAME charities and support BAME communities to support themselves. And like, I'm sure you see this a lot in your work and I was talking to one of my friends who's a social worker and she's she's white but most of her clients unsurprisingly she's in London are from ethnic minorities and for her and we were talking about it having community organizations and local community organizations are so important as a layer between the state and the family like in terms of understanding like how to navigate cultural things, speaking to people, accessing services. Yeah, 100%. Like, fine, we're seeing it's really bad now. There are people dying left, right and centre, but actually what happens if those small organisations do close and then in six months' time we're in the middle of one of the worst recessions we've ever seen and those resources aren't there for the people who we know are going to lose their jobs, suffer domestic violence, have to deal with social services and the state in a way that they, and that they don't know how to. I think that's a really, a really great observation because one of the things that we're passionate about at Power the Fight is how we develop culturally competent services. So one of the things we're focusing on actually is the fair, like therapeutic services. So 
the big problem we have seen, particularly in a London context where youth violence disproportionately impacts black and brown people, um, just be clear, I'm not saying that youth violence is a black issue or a brown issue. I'm just saying in a London context, this is what we're seeing. Mm. We've realised that actually uh, BAME communities don't then access therapy. And so we're doing some research at the moment. We're advocating for cultural competent therapeutic services. What I'm surprised is that it's taken so long for people to get this specific, to really start talking about the context of where we are, what we're dealing with. And we can't just have this blanket response to, to everything. Um, so that's, it's really helpful to know that you are beginning to have these conversations. My question is how successful do you feel you're being? So, are, you mentioned comment relief, for example, who you said quite good. Are people open, you know, the national lotteries, the, the big grant funders, are they open to having these type of conversations? You're smiling. So I almost get the answer. <laughs> I, I, feel, I, feel, I might know the answer before you say it. But I, how, I, how open are they for a, a, an Asian, a brown woman to come in and say, I've got a charity called Charity So White. Can we have a conversation? How easy is that? I, I think... It's not easy, and it's why, it, why it's interesting speaking to people like you. So the structure of our organisation is we don't take funding. We take donations, and sometimes we've been to work with larger organisations and they've paid us for our time, but we don't take grants or trust money or anything like that because we don't want to be connected to any of the large funders so we can say the things that other organisations can't say. Um, and that means that's quite hard because it means all of us who are on the committee have full-time jobs and do this in our spare time so we can push it push the agenda forward um and i think that's how we've been able to speak to those people and to get in to those rooms because as you rightly said like we've said stuff on Twitter, we say stuff, we go on panels and we say stuff and we say stuff that we think lots of people are maybe thinking but who because of their relationships within the sector and their careers within the sector they can't say yeah um and i think that's kind of what makes the big funders quite scared of us um it's an interesting one i think they're keen to engage and i think there is a lot of goodwill there and there are people who are genuinely really trying but then there are some people who are, and I don't really want to use the word brownwashing because it's a bit there, but who like want to brownwash what they're doing because they can see that culturally, particularly COVID, has created a space for us to be really radical and to say, look, like people are dying, you need to do something about this. And I know you've been dragging your heels for however many years, but when it comes out that most key workers and most people in low paid jobs, particularly in like large urban areas who are going to get sick and who are going to die are the people who are from ethnic minorities and you're turning around and you're saying that you're giving all your funding to hospice care hospice care is great but if they get the money and small organizations working with the pe- with people who are being disproportionately affected don't get money that's mm. a huge question like why is that the case and they're starting i think actually 
some of the fear is they're starting to interrogate themselves about, and some of the leaders are starting to interrogate themselves about why that's the case. And yeah. we're having people hide behind data and the lack of data and not understanding what data to collect, et cetera, et cetera. But as those excuses start to diminish, you start to see what's at the core of it. And that is a lack of willing to take a political risk for the sake of people who aren't like you. Yeah. Uh, if I'm going to be totally honest, and it doesn't mean there aren't excellent leaders and that they don't care. It yeah. just means that they they don't see it as some as their fight, and that's why we exist. Yeah, and I, and I, and that is, I think it's so important to have organisations like yourself existing. Like you said, saying the things that maybe many of us are thinking, but are afraid that oh my goodness, if I say that, does that mean that I'm blacklisted? You know, for want of a better phrase, you know, it's like you know, it's that type of thing. It's very, it is quite scary um, for a small organisation. Although I think there's. This is where it gets complicated. So in my sector, when we're talking about young people, we're talking about youth violence, half the time I'm battling to say that this disproportionality, because we're a UK-wide charity, we're like, you know, if I'm working in London, it's a context where we're saying youth violence disproportionately impacts uh, people of colour, but don't for a moment just think this is a black issue when you're going across the country so like half the time I'm trying to convince people who don't really understand this or even funders that this is the issue so please don't stereotype and be careful of what you're, you're putting out there and then on the flip side it's like we're now saying we're not now saying but we're also saying look if we look look at COVID this is disproportionately impacting black and brown people make this a priority make this an issue do something about it so while I'm not this is not me defending anybody no. I, I suppose there is something in me which is like man if you're a funder if you're white if you're it must be quite difficult sometimes yeah. to know where to land I'm yeah. trying not to be generalised and stereotypical and at the same time there is a desire for me to actually be very specific and contextual about what's going on culturally. I don't know if you've got any advice for people. Who's it's, it's really challenging, right? And like, that's why actually like, we're quite loud on Twitter and I'm quite, I'm being quite radical now, but I don't, I think I'm a bit nicer than this in meetings and funders. <laughs> <laughs> At least I hope they think that senior leaders don't think I'm being quite this mean. But I think that's why it's useful for them to have the challenge. Like it's useful to people to, sit down and say, well, this is what you've proposed. Here are the structures you've proposed. Here's what we think are wrong with them. And actually for them to, even if they can't, if they say they can't ring fence, then okay, but what are you going to do to ensure that money is getting to where it needs to go? What kind of data are you collecting how transparent are you being with your data? We know millions of pounds has already been handed out, but no one's showing us the data about who it's gone to. Where it's going, yeah. Where it's going. And if you want to be really effective and you claim that you want to be equitable and fair, then you need to collect the data that you think is so important and you need to tell us what it is. And then if you're not succeeding then we have to hold you accountable and we have to ask why you're not succeeding. 
why have you not made this change? And it's it's not a nice thing to say to someone who obviously has a lot of things. We speak to people and they genuinely look really stressed. And it's like, this is not an easy thing for us to say. We know it's not an easy thing for you to have to do as a person when you're worried about your own organisation and your own staff and your own family. But actually, like, it is your job. It is your job to make sure that these funds are being handed out fairly and that they support the most vulnerable and that actually you use the power that you have to say something really important right now. And I think what you say is really interesting and we've had a lot of conversations within the uh, Vogue sector, so the violence against women and girls sector. Mm. And it's a, a similar sort of thing there because it's like violence against women and girls isn't just an issue for ethnic minorities at all, but we know it disproportionately does affect women from those backgrounds. And when you talk about the issue with coalitions of charities, it's very tricky for them because it's saying, one, we know domestic violence. And I, I, I had a chat with a charity and they were essentially like, it's great because our issue isn't normally in the headlines as much as it is at the moment, but the problem is that people aren't speaking about it in the right way. And how do, we, how do we have the conversation and we say, we know there are big charities led by white people who can support women in these circumstances, but actually we know that where there are small community organizations supporting women from particular backgrounds, those are the organizations you have to fund because those are the organisations that have cultural context, and in this con- and in in this context more than any other, mm. it's knowing that women feel comfortable to go and speak to someone who understands them and will do that work. And it's so difficult, right? I can totally see where you're coming from. It's, there, there's no easy answer, I think, apart from trying to continue to push and continue to open up that space for people to have these conversations. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think there is no easy answer. I think I always say there has to be a combination of, of uh, options, I suppose, to, to, to keep the conversation going. I think it's, it's so needed, definitely from my sector, I can see the challenge. I can see some monopolies, I suppose, of organisations who get a lot of funding. And I just think it's very difficult for the grassroots organisations. So for us, we're in this position where we believe very much about system and culture change. So that we're in a very interesting position where we do the grassroots work. We, we engage with young people and families um, in the aftermath of, of youth violence. But at the same time, I sit on the Violence Reduction Unit for London with Sadiq Khan and Youth Violence Commission and a few other bits and pieces. So trying to bring what I would call that air engagement of policy, strategy, system, culture change to the ground is a really good space to be in. Not many of us can do that space well. Normally, we're kind of like one or the other. And I think we need more people in that kind of liminal space where we can be like, okay, can can we connect the dots? Um, I feel like I could honestly talk to you all day because there's so much <laughs> more I'd like to, especially around Hounslow, because I went to Brunel University and I, I lived, yeah, and I lived in Cranford for a while. Yeah. Uh, and Hounslow, oh, I'm going to get this wrong, Hounslow West maybe, or East, is one, one of them is closer and that's where I used to go. So uh, it's, um, it has a place, as, as I've got a soft spot for Hounslow. <laughs> um, 
But yeah. I, I just suppose, is there any advice mm. you would give to these grassroots organisations who are struggling? Because what's happening at the moment is that there is an abundance of, of money coming out. Um, yeah. uh, well, it feels like that anyway. Uh, yeah. All very COVID-focused. And a lot, I've been in contact with lots of organisations who are saying, we're going for this, we're going for that, should we collaborate? And I, and I said to somebody else recently on a power talk, I said, the danger is, is that actually the temptation is to change your USP as a, as a charity just to get this money because of what you said earlier on. Yeah. Oh, do you know what? We're a small organization. Are we going to survive? And now, fortunately, we're actually in a good financial position. But for many, it's like, oh, man, I don't know if we are going to survive. So do we now effectively do something which we don't? normally do just to get this money like is there any advice how you would navigate this particular time in this covid like current covid world where organizations might be going under but also there's an abundance of money how would you navigate that that space so really tricky i think the one thing i would stress and remember is that because of the light that's being shone on them like funders are desperate to get their money out to good grassroots organizations serving BAME people and being led by BAME people. Mm. They just are. They're desperate to. And I know that for lots of organizations, they would have been rejected for stuff in the past. They will have like probably suffered like interpersonal racism and lots of their encounters. Like a funder in a meeting called me Hannah the other day. And I was like, really? <laughs> no, we did, but I was just like, come on. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just to genuinely give it another go and to appreciate that the funders want to help you as much as possible. Yeah. Um, there are also organisations like Future Foundations and 2027, and I know they're all banding together to hopefully start providing some free advice to organizations and like to keep that your eyes open for when that comes out. But apart from that, it's just to engage with funders as much as possible because now is the time. Also, if you're a grassroots organization and you're not speaking to a local community foundation, um, may, maybe because they haven't funded you before, or you don't have a relationship, like now is the time to speak to your local community foundation because a lot of money will th- flow through them and I'll be yeah. actively looking for grassroots BAME organisations to fund that's really really helpful well um, is, is there anything else you, you, you'd want to make a comment about um, before we kind of close off the meeting is there anything desperately you'd like to leave us with definitely um, I don't know I think it's been really interesting talking to you it's always interesting talking to someone who's actually I think it's really weird doing this work with Charity So Why, I sort of fell into it, as I said, and I described how it started. But actually, it's nice speaking to people who are doing the stuff that you're trying to represent and trying to do. And I think everyone has to remember that everyone has a role to play in this space or doing this kind of thing and just being aware that everyone can do something. And even if it's a little thing, like people feel particularly at the moment people feel like they're lacking in power and there is something you can do like you might not be able to take someone's shopping for them whatever but you can retweet something you can write to your local counsellor you can go and talk to someone you can make a change that will 
help increase the pressure on these organizations to do more for ethnic minorities and for our people and you just yeah. have to do it that's it uh, that, that's really helpful and, I, and you're somebody who i often say when i when i train or talk about youth violence as well i say exactly that you don't always have to be the frontline worker you can yeah. you can write you can you can talk to your mp you can find out what's going on with your crime reduction unit you can demand to see the for you find the strategy. So there's a lot of things which people can, can do and you're, you're definitely a woman after my own heart with that mentality. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. It. Um, it's been great chatting to you. No, it's been really good. And yeah, I think what you guys are doing and what you're bringing to the table is really needed. And I know from experience, when you, when you speak out uh, about an issue like this, it can be really difficult. Um, it can be really mean out there as well. <laughs> so, um, so I, I know, you know, it, you, you have to be built with some strong stuff. So keep going. And um, yeah, Power to Fight supports what you're doing. So, so it's been brilliant. Thank you so much, Anna. I really appreciate your time. Great. Right, thank you.